0: You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. Who is familiar with the concept of the goat? Not this goat, but this goat. Well, maybe not that intense looking goat, but the greatest of all time. We're obsessed. We love it. You love a good goat joke. Yeah, yeah. It's for you, Caesar. It's for you. (laughs) And we love talking about who's the goat. Who's the goat in any sport? Who's the goat in any industry? Who's the most famous of famous? And um, in in soccer, a lot of people think it's Lionel Messi. Look at this guy, even posing with a goat. How many football soccer fans do we have? That's for you, Will. So I'll be here all day. We'll go one by one. I'll find your thing. Skateboarding's up next, Josh. In women's basketball, most people think Diana Taurasi is the GOAT. She's a three-time NCAA champion for UConn three times in the WNBA and she owns five gold medals. That is a lot. That is my entire adult life. She's been dominating globally. But the biggest GOAT debate we have is the NBA. It's Michael Jordan uh, versus LeBron James for most people, maybe a little Kobe contingent in there as well, maybe a Bill Russell, but it's mostly Michael Jordan versus LeBron James, and people go back and forth. But I am here to say definitively, per the scripture of the internet, YouTube clips, it's Jordan. He is the greatest of all time. Go to the YouTubes and watch him. And here's the deal. We love greatness. We love discussing great things. We love seeing great things. We pray play, we pay great prices to go to Super Bowls or see concerts or things like that because we love greatness. There is a taste of glory and greatness that we've all been made for. See, God is glorious and we're made in his image and we are built to desire his beauty, his power, his glory. Yet because of sin, we desire glory for ourselves. We desire a glory apart from God. It's actually our design malfunctioning. It's a virus in our programming. That we were meant to serve a glorious God and in that way reflect His glory back to Him and enjoy it and bask in it like turtles on a log on a hot day or like a child jumping into a parent's arms after a long day of work to just bask in the glory that I'm loved and I'm safe and I'm held. That's what you were made for. We were made for this glory, but because we chose a long time ago in the garden to go another way, we've been glory hunting ever since, trying to get just a piece of meaning, of significance, of fame, of power, of glory, whatever you want to call it, but we keep finding out that worldly glory is just fool's gold. Ask anyone who made it, and they just start looking around, whatever making it may be to them. In Luke 9, Jesus heals a boy that no one else could, and look as if the crowd marvels at the majesty of God. Verse 43, and all were astonished, at the majesty, the greatness of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let this sink into your ears, that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus is telling us these same people who are praising his wonders will be the same, same people who will spit on him as he's crucified that will join in the chanting for his own death. But the disciples don't let these words sink in. They see the majesty or the greatness of God and begin to argue about their own greatness. See, the root word of majesty there is the same root word, mega, that's used in verse 46 for greatest. We're meant to see they saw the greatness of Jesus. They heard a warning. They ignored the warning. They ignore the majesty of God and start asking, what about me? Can I be great too? How great can I be? Even how much greater will I be than this guy or that guy? The people around us, verse 46. And an argument arose among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. They don't bask in Jesus's glory, but immediately start scrapping for their own. And Jesus gives these warnings because following Jesus is not a bait and switch situation. Jesus is worth it, but following Jesus is difficult. Jesus is going to say in just a few verses that he set his face to Jerusalem, a trip he will not return from. His death awaits there. And all these disciples who are following him and excited, they're not realizing we're not going to go back home that for most of them, they will be in Jerusalem and suffer, they'll be spread out and they will suffer, that things are not just on the up and up and up, up the glory mountain, but rather the pattern of the Bible and what's coming in their life is suffering, then glory. It's in every chapter of the Bible. It's a pattern that God's laid in a broken world to accomplish his will. But Jesus is patient with the disciples. And he's patient with us. If already you're like, I feel a little pricked by, by some stuff, it's okay. Jesus is patient with us. He's patient with them. And the next scenes in Luke 9, it's scene after scene after scene of saying true greatness is following Jesus, and it won't look like the world. What you think is great in the world is about to be flipped on its head in the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, the way up is actually the way down. Take a look at me. Take take a look at this. In verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. What a phrase. Not here to strike them down with knowledge, but reaching in and talking to their very soul, saying, there's more going on here than two toddlers bickering. There's something wrong in your heart that we gotta talk about. Knowing the reasoning of their hearts, Jesus took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, receives him who sent me, for he who is the least among you all is the one who will be great. That's what he speaks to their hearts. Listen, if you find yourself concerned about your position relative to others' positions, you have already lost. If someone's elevation at work depresses you, The problem is your heart, not them. If someone's elevation at work or in your extended family or church depresses you, your heart is the problem. The disciples should be floored with a glorious Jesus. We should be floored that God would use us at all. But instead, the disciples are busy arguing about their potential elevation in the future that hasn't even happened. They're having a hypothetical argument about who's great among them. And what we would call this is scorekeeping. And we love to keep score of all the rights and wrongs of everyone else and act as God, keeping score like we know people's hearts, keeping score like we know their motivations, or even qualified to measure their goodness versus ours. And what scorekeeping is, who will be greatest? It's manipulation it doesn't stay a ledger in our mind, but it oozes into every morsel of gossip, every snide comment, every help withheld, every poor pouting when things don't go our way. We subtly create coldness and drama based on keeping score of, well, I'm greater than them. It's not just a mental game. It's a reasoning of the heart. Scorekeeping steals love from others because you cannot manipulate someone and love them at the same time. They're opposites. It can't happen. And be sure when we're seeking our own glory by scorekeeping, which is what it is, because we always end up on top of the scorecard. (laughs) We're seeking our own glory by counting out everyone else's enemies or less than. When we do that, when we seek our own glory, for sure, we've stopped seeking Jesus's glory. We can't do both. In life, we honor those above us. We honor those below us. We honor those beside us. Because 1 Peter 2.17 tells us there's no situation that doesn't call for a level of honor over self-exaltation. In the book of 1 Peter, it says, honor the emperor, an emperor who is calling for the persecution of Christians that Peter is imagining that Christians could still find a way to honor those, even they disagree with them, people who are dead wrong, all these things. You can't honor and keep score. You can't do it. And how could a growing, beautiful, dynamic church like Citizens start to die? When we start being offended at every change in elevation as the church grows and pursues its mission. Whew. That's something to sink down to the reasoning of our heart. Do I keep score? Because if I keep score, I can be sure I'm already losing. Greatness isn't about jockeying for position. The disciples are just wrong. The whole argument's wrong. It's not that they don't have the right answer. It's just wrong. Greatness is positioning yourself to receive from Jesus, like a little child, and serve because of Jesus, people who are little children, the least of these. If you want greatness, it's not about keeping score. It's about coming close to Jesus, to experience God's love, to receive from him, just like a child to a parent, to bask in Jesus's glory, not seek our own. And when Jesus says the least are the greatness, he's saying that true neediness starts, true greatness starts with our neediness for God. How do we receive from Jesus like a child? Think about a kid. Be hungry like a kid, gobbling down the bread of Jesus, his very words. Be thirsty like a kid. My kids just ask for water constantly. And just the first sign of heat, it's like, oh, where's the water? But we're meant to be the same, to be thirsty, to say, I need Jesus' strength, not my own. Ask Jesus to hold you. He's a willing parent. He's a present parent. He longs to be close with you. He won't refuse you. Would you refuse Jesus' sweet embrace saying, actually, I'm pursuing my own glory? No, thanks. Because if I hug you, I can't be great. Would you refuse to find your significance in Jesus? Children don't run around trying to be significant. They're too needy to want greatness. They want attention, but they don't want greatness. And there's a big difference. Attention is neediness. Wanting greatness is a sinful hunger for self-exaltation. He says, come like a little child. It's okay to have needs okay to want God's attention. You were built for it. And he'll give it. He's not a stingy dad. He's not an unstable mom. He says, come into my arms. To become like a child means you become free from the chains of searching for your own significance. By finding glory in the father's arms, suddenly you're significant because God loves you. And you don't have to go make it out in the world and prove it to everyone else. The Christian knows Jesus is my significant. His love fulfills what I need. I don't need to step on my brother's neck to get ahead. I don't need to run around thinking I'm the solution to every problem. I don't need to fight every fight. I don't need to obsess about what people think of me or narcissistically wonder about my position in every social setting. I don't need any rat race because I realize all the rats are racing for bites at the apple of the same poison of personal glory. The Christian can just opt out and say, I don't have to think about myself so much. Jesus is freeing us from the cage of seeking our own glory. And he invites us to come serve in a kingdom where positions and roles are only about responsibility instead of glory seeking. Positions and roles in God's kingdom are not about personal glory, but about responsibility. And in this kingdom, that serving those who cannot serve you back is the highest order of glory. That's why Jesus grabs a child. Children were problems in ancient culture. They weren't valued. They're often sick and needy, often died. People tried not to get too attached, try not to put too much care because they just, they weren't a part of what was important in their culture. The power ranking was low for them. They were not the goat. But Jesus said, serve them, serve the lowest on the power ranking of your culture. Listen to King Jesus's vision in Luke 14. He said, when he put on a luncheon or a banquet, Don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors, for they'll invite you back. And that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. If you want greatness, Jesus is saying greatness is given for serving the least of these. Jesus is the one throwing the great banquet for us. When we meet these needs physically in this life, meet the needs of folks that are struggling, that are hurting, that, are, that may be crippled or imprisoned or poor or blind or lame, we are showing a giant mirror that Jesus is doing this for everyone. Because we're all spiritually blind. We're all spiritually lame. We're all spiritually imprisoned. We're all spiritually crippled. We're all spiritually poor. That if you want to go up in the kingdom of God, you go down and you serve everyone. But it starts with your neediness before God, which turns into a love for others. Not to prove you're better than another, but just to serve because Jesus loves them. and He loves you too. But that's not all. Verse 49, the disciples encounter something brand new to them. They've never met this. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The disciples the disciples struggled to learn that they don't have a monopoly on Jesus that Jesus has chosen them, Jesus is investing in them, but God is on the move with or without them. And we learn greatness isn't about you or your tribe. Greatness is about focusing on Jesus. Our posture towards other Christians, other churches, other ministries, other movements is humility and all other answers are unacceptable. Unity in Christ is enough for diversity of movements that requires a maturing humility in us. When we focus on Jesus, we become humble. The late pastor Tim Keller put it like this, that the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. We think about ourselves less, our positions, our rightness over another by focusing on Jesus. See, if we are for Jesus and they are for Jesus, then there's never really a big problem. There might be differences, there might be partnerships or non-partnerships or all different goals, that's okay. But if everyone's following Jesus, then our attitude is humility and humble love and support. But if our focus is us, then everyone's a rival. Everyone must be stopped so I can be great. We start to become conquerors when love has made us more than conquerors. So we see this in Christianity, but we see the disease of tribalism goes much further. Our country is absolutely swamped in political tribalism, economic tribalism, uh, racial tribalism. This is, uh, uh, pick a news story, cultural tribalism. When you feel at war, though, especially with Christians, hear the word of the Lord from James 4. What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you do not have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. We see the world as you versus me instead of God owning all the world and a good father providing all things. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. We're back to the heart. You want only what will give you pleasure. The pleasure we seek in simple terms, is glory for us. That's what it is. Are you seeking your own glory? If so, everyone will seem like an enemy. Glory lead the glory of us leads us not to wonder, but woe. Not to the pinnacle, but to the pit. And on our triumph, it will be our very trap. But what about when it's not rivalry between other believers, but people who actively oppose us? What's greatness in the kingdom of God then? Because there's people who actively oppose the Christian message, actively oppose you personally, maybe at work, that they know you're a Christian and they're already done with you before it starts. What do we do? Verse 51. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell the fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they just went on to another village. Now, the Jews hated Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. That street went both ways. It was an ethnic division. It was a political division. It was a racial division. And it was also a religious division because they were on opposite sides of the fence on just about everything. And they came to bloodshed of both sides doing wrong things in this endless cycle of retribution and revenge. And what James and John are asking has some biblical precedent. Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 does call down fire on his Samaritan enemies. When you read early in the Old Testament, Moses does ask for the instant judgment of God and gets it. But Jesus is resetting their expectations. Jesus' ministry isn't judgment. Rather, Jesus is here to face the judgment for all people on the cross. One day, Jesus, the fair and just, will judge all people. He is keeping a score, but not yet, and not this day. And personal and corporate glory-seeking, aka tribalism, just simply isn't the way of Jesus. Racism has no place in the kingdom of God. Nationalism has no place in the kingdom of God. Political fighting has no place in the kingdom of God. Voting, advocacy, careful thought, even protest, yes and amen. But violence, hate speech, destruction, terrorism, that's a big no. There's only one religion in the kingdom. It's the worship of Jesus, and there's no need to war against other religions. Christianity will triumph in the end without any bullets in this life. We learn in Jesus' kingdom, who's flipping everything about the world's values upside down, that greatness isn't about punishing your enemies, but greatness is about loving your enemies. That's what he taught in Luke 6 and is living out all of his life. So check out this. What if at work you were known primarily for your ability to forgive and let things go? What if crossing you wasn't the end at work? What if zero people were scared of you? What if no one was intimidated by you? Sometimes you can't help. Maybe you're the boss, and people are just intimidated by. But what if you did nothing to build on that fear or expectation? That you didn't play on it either. What if you didn't feel like you had to defend and fight among your coworkers? What if you said gossip isn't for me? I'm not here to crush anybody. I'm not here to limit. Anybody. Because greatness isn't found in our wrath, but in our worship of the Lamb. Let me ask you another way. Could you handle the weight of love without wrath? Could you handle the weight of love in every relationship without wrath in the other hand? Ask it even a different way. Do you want a great marriage? Do you want forever friends? Have you tried love without wrath? That any wrath that does need to be meted out will be meted out by God in the end, not you. Jesus never asks you to do something he doesn't do. He is a perfect leader in that way because Jesus doesn't come to punish his enemies. Instead, Jesus is punished for his enemies, us on the cross to change us to his friends by the power of the gospel. He's not suggesting that it's easy to love enemies. It's very hard. But it's not a road that Jesus doesn't already walk himself. Loving even the people who are literally crucifying, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Three more men come to Jesus with some situations kind of looking for, hey, I'll follow you. But what about this? Verse 57, Jesus has a single answer for all of them. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus simply tells him greatness isn't about where you live. All the fretting and thinking we do about where we live, if we're in this neighborhood or this part of this part of the city, this, this, this. Greatness isn't about where you live. You're not going to be happier in another city. I feel like that's the, the big dream. If greatness in Jesus is the most important thing, then that's available no matter what your address is. Greatness is found in following Jesus. Verse 59, to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Greatness isn't about what you have. See, this is a confusing passage, but this man, what he's really asking is, can I have it all? because his dad hasn't died today. Plenty of Old Testament scriptures, scriptures, the very words of Jesus would say, bury your father on the day of his death. But rather this man wants to fulfill the righteousness of burying his parents and being a good son, but he also wants to receive their inheritance one day. This is an ancient version of asking, I'll get serious about Jesus once I finished dating and, and well off in my career and uh, plenty of money and, and finally buy a house, then I will follow you, Jesus, no questions asked. Something like, Jesus, can I be great in worldly things and then just follow you on my schedule? That's for my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, for when I retire, for some other time. And Jesus tells us, I'm gonna keep walking and you have the option to start following now how long will you wait to follow Jesus with your life or in some area of your life to say, yeah, one day when this happens and this, I'll I'll surrender to his ways, not mine. We think of all different reasons of why my obedience can wait or should wait. And Jesus is only saying, follow me. You won't get a different caveat out of Jesus. Follow me. Greatness is found in Jesus alone. Verse 61, the final man, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Finally, greatness isn't about what others think of you. This man's request is, it's sentimental, but He's going back to tell everyone, hey, I'm doing this and convince them it's a good idea and reason with them and just make sure everyone's on the same page and everyone's cheering him on and everyone's going to be down with what he's saying and he's not misunderstood by anybody. And Elisha made the same request of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And Elijah let Elisha go say goodbye to his town and his family and everything. He actually found him in a field where he was plowing. That's what it's all referencing right here. But Jesus just lets us know I'm greater than Elijah, and I call you to follow me today without delay. If you wait till everyone understands your following of Jesus, you will wait forever. Part of following Jesus is to be misunderstood. We can't follow a misunderstood Messiah. It's every chapter. Every chapter, they don't know who he is. Every chapter, they're accusing him of being a devil worshiper, accusing him of heresy, accusing him of this. He's not enough of this or too much of that. If you're going to follow the man who's always misunderstood, you're going to have to take some misunderstanding from family, friends, coworkers, and relatives. In fact, you're going to have to let your reputation go. If you built a worldly reputation and now you follow a heavenly savior, You can't hold on to the greatness of your reputation in high school or college or work or in the neighborhood and grab a new reputation built on the goodness of Jesus. Jesus keeps walking because greatness is found in following Jesus alone. True greatness is simply not found in this world. You can find self-glory, vainglory, a fading glory You can find glory that will be forgotten in 15 minutes nowadays, but at least in a century. We were made to find our deep, true significance in Jesus. Not in our kids, not in our marriage, not in our work, not in our friends, not in our family, not in our political beliefs, but in Jesus. And in that way, you actually become the best friend you possibly can be you actually end up the best citizen of Birmingham you possibly could be. You end up the best spouse, the best worker, the best neighbor, the best son or daughter. You actually, in following Jesus, become someone who stops keeping score and waging war against everyone. As we let go of worldly glory and we grab on the heavenly glory, suddenly we become a force of tremendous good in this world. But we can't be the center of it. When Jesus becomes a center, we actually care more about these things, but we do it because of the Lord's agenda to love instead of our agenda to be great. About a week ago, I stood before the men incarcerated at Bibb County Correctional. It's one of the largest prisons in Alabama. The room was very packed, Um, well over a hundred men crammed into a room, maybe half this size. Uh, there's no AC. It's actually their bunk room. It's not like a chaplain room. And so men lining the bunks, it's probably a steamy 85 in there. And preaching the very same message to my brothers. And as I shared and sympathized with them being cut off from the world, missing milestones, having very limited, uh, no money to speak of, having everyday life scripted for them, under watch. Sympathized with that part but also shared, there's absolutely nothing about true greatness in this passage that cannot be accomplished in prison. Everything Jesus just mentioned can be accomplished in Bibb County Correctional. And like those prisoners, there is nothing on this list that will stop you from being great with Jesus. There's nothing. We think if I only had the time or the money or this or this or this, there's no barrier between you and that except the ones we choose to erect. Quitting the rat race for positions over others, ending your tribalism, refusing to punish your enemies. No matter where you live, no matter what you have or don't have, you can let go of everyone's opinions. And fam, that is the cross Jesus speaks about. To find your life in Jesus, not this world, not for your own glory, And listen to Jesus' words in Luke 9. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But for whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? Church, I encourage you, take the next step of letting go whatever it is to follow Jesus with your whole heart, choosing that his glory is better, that Jesus' glory is where you belong, and that your glory won't lead anywhere at all.